Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security groups, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, Diana Kelly. Hi, Diana. Hi. Diana's security career spans over 30 years. She is the co-founder and CTO of Security Curve and donates much of her time to volunteer work in the cybersecurity community, including ACM Ethics and Plagiarisms Committee, Sightline Security, Women in Cybersecurity, CompTIA, Barrett College of Science and Mathematics, Bridgewater State University, and the RSAC US Program Committee. Diana produces the hashtag MyCyberY series and is the host of Bright Talks, the Security Balancing Act, and co-host of the Your Everyday Cyber podcast. She was the cybersecurity field CTO for Microsoft, global executive security advisor at IBM Security, GM at Symantec, VP at Burton Group, now Gartner, and a manager at KPMG. So Diana, let's get started. How did you get started with security? I got started pretty young in security. I didn't even know that it was security. So my dad brought home a programmable Texas Instruments calculator, and it was the early 70s, and I just absolutely fell in love with this thing. You know, it's like, I was like, oh my God, you can like actually type things into it, and then I could, it could push out, you know, different equations and functions, and I just thought it was the most amazing thing. So when computers became, first appeared on the scene in the late 70s, and I built a, a Heathkit computer together, and because he worked at MIT Lincoln Labs, I was able to get into the early DARPAnet through the computers at MIT Tech Square, and I had a kid's account. And I was just floored because you know, it's like 1978. When people hear this story now, I think they feel like almost like I was like hanging out with pterodactyls and you know brontosaurus because it's so hard hard for people to imagine a world where we didn't have a connected life. You know, we didn't have basically the internet in our pocket. We could look up anything we want in the world. But in the late seventies, it was, we were still paying extreme amounts to be able to call somebody who was outside of our, our neighborhood, basically, you know, just to pick up the phone and call them. And it would cost like a dollar a minute. It was nuts. So now suddenly I'm on the system and I can communicate with people, not just at the Tech Square area, but, you know, there are military systems attached. There are different, you know, Cal Berkeley's attached. I think University College London was attached at the time. So it was just amazing because, you know, I could now talk to these people because we had instant messaging. We had email. It looked ugly, but it worked. And I wanted to know more, right? I'm a young kid. I want to know more. How do these things work? I want to investigate. But I had an account that, you know, was very limited, of course. Right, business need to know. It was good access control that they were using, but I had this thirst to want to be able to read the manuals and see how these systems actually work. And I figured out that if I could log into somebody's account that had more access, that then I could read those manuals and understand how the systems worked a little bit better. And the way that I was able to get that more access was I also figured out that if you kind of hung out at the login screen, 
that you could see because the way the system was was written at the time, you could see people's passwords as they entered them. So I sat there and I watched people log in with their usernames and passwords. And I would try out this username, that username until I got, turned out it was a Navy Admiral, I think. I got somebody's password that had a whole lot of access. And I was so excited. I got onto the system where I could read everything. And the next day, very promptly, uh, I was told that if I ever did anything like that again, all of my access would be removed. I'd never be allowed on the systems. And I just love them so much. So I said, okay, that's it. And I never did it again. I understand now that if a 13-year-old kid that did that today and stole passwords, there's no, you don't say to them, hey, you know, that's that don't do it again. But again, I want to really level set. This was 1978 and stealing passwords, I didn't quite understand really what I was doing or how grievous that was. But what I did do is I found a vulnerability <laughs> and like that was a, something that I, I thought about a long time afterwards about, you know, how systems work. And as I, I learned to code, taught myself you know, more about computers, I understood that if you weren't really uh, resilient in your coding, that then things, misuse cases like what I did could occur. And as I, I, after I graduated and when I eventually went into a professional, there was a little detour into editorial work, but I, I became a network admin and I, I worked my way up to managing a global network. And I loved this network. I really loved networking. That whole, that passion I had as a kid was now ignited and I'm working in business and I, I brought the whole, we had nine offices around the world. I brought it together. I thought it was the most amazing thing. But somebody got onto the network and started to jam up my servers. And and I realized at that point that that years ago when I had figured out about the passwords and these people getting on my system were actually connected and it was around security and vulnerability. And as much as I loved computers and the way that they could bring people together, I also understood that if they weren't secured, if they weren't resilient, that they were not going to be able to, you know, the promise would not be realized. So at that moment, I pivoted my career. And instead of being a network person and, and, and building networks, I really wanted to focus on security them. And that's what I did. And interestingly, when I made that decision, I did talk to a number of other people in my field and said, I think I'm going to focus on the security stuff. I think this is the most important thing. Technology is not going to matter if we don't get the security right. And I was told that um, security really wasn't kind of a growth area. Because security was like the early 90s. Security is going to, or the mid 90s, I guess. You know, security is going to be solved. Don't worry about it. Uh, so you're basically killing your career. You're much better to stay in networking. And I said, I'm, I'm going to do security networking. And, and uh, I did. And then I got into application security. So that's it. So it really just came out of passion and, and ingenuity. And then ultimately anger that somebody got on my system. And I never wanted that to happen again. And boy, were they wrong about security being figured out and someone will solve that problem. Can you believe it? Yeah. I mean, cool. <laughs> well, a lot of great insights there, Diana. And I have a couple of things that really kind of brought back some memories that are they're interesting. So the first one about, you know, let's think about the fact how well connected we are across the world. Yeah. The fact that before, if you wanted to make a phone call to your friend who lived maybe a town across, maybe a mile or two away, 
but just so happens to cross the border, you could not make a phone call without being charged for long distance just because their area code was different. Exactly. And yet today we're in a world where we call people all around the world using many of the systems with voice over IP and, and you know, mobile devices and, and, you know, mobile internet access. We make these calls without even thinking of cost anymore. Yes. So it's, I love to see and sometimes think about how far we've come from a technology perspective. But of course, from a security perspective, we haven't necessarily solved all the problems because some of the challenges that you you mentioned, right, you exploited it when you were 13. And just imagine what type of damage someone who was determined and skilled could do at that time to systems as they were getting interconnected. The other thing about that I thought was really funny around just saying, don't do that ever again, was the solution to the the problem that you had found. I, I had a similar situation where my work laptop was limiting. So I was, one day I took my personal laptop to the office to write a script because I thought I found a vulnerability in these uh, drivers for, I believe they were Broadcom uh, Wi-Fi drivers or something. I, I don't remember the exact specifics, but I, I wrote up a script that could send this certain sequence of brackets and it would end up blue screening the computer that okay. yeah those network cards. Yeah. I just didn't know that everyone in the office had the same network card. So as I was running my script and just walking down and broadcasting around the building, you could hear people getting upset because all their machines are blue screening. And then the IT person came to me and got mad at me. And their solution to the problem was don't bring your personal computer to the office ever again. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what about this bigger problem? Now, this wasn't that early. This was in the 2000s. So, you know, we have a long way to go, I think, uh, from that perspective. But you brought back your stories, brought back some, some interesting memories from my, my life too. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, communication. I find that technical people often don't know how to communicate things correctly or communicate things to people at the right level in their language. So connecting and, and conveying a particular message to the C-suite is a very common challenge uh, across the industry and whether it be regarding security or not. But, you know, ultimately, I'm more curious about security ROI, and especially when it when it comes to asking for budget to do something. Could you share with us from your experience what type of things you did that maybe worked well for you? Yeah, you know, ROI can be a really tough one because in security, we often are, you know, sometimes it's called like rosy return on security investment or what's the return on negligence. But remember, if you're going up to the executives, or if you're presenting to the C-suite, that you have to look at the, the world through their lens, right? We tend to, as technical people, look at it through our lens, which is okay for our understanding, but remember their lens. And their lens is that, in general, the executives and the, the board of directors are responsible, it's the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders or the owners of the company to make it profitable. So always think about that. Think about how does this translate to profitability? So if you just go in and you say something like, oh, if we don't spend a whole bunch of money on SAST and DAS tools for app testing, then everything, you know, things are going to go wrong or look at this big failure that happened to a customer. That might help them, but they really want to think about profitability. So don't, don't just go in there with this really technical detail, go in there with this is what it means to the impact to our bottom line. So I think that's what one a main thing is to just remember the lens that they're looking through. And then the second one is to not dismiss the fact that their lens is different as it's somehow denigrated. The, the craziest thing I ever saw was a technical person in front of a board of directors say, I'm the risk expert here. Well, okay. Like they were the technical risk expert, but they didn't understand that what the board, the entire job of the board is risk assessment. It's a different lens of risk assessments, business and profit, but it's, it's still, it's risk. They're the risk experts. 
So that was a way to really shut them down and have that board just immediately get this idiot out of here. So I think that those two are the really important things. People always say talk in the language of the business, but the way to actually do that in practice is to once again, remember their lens about profitability and remember that risk is about business risk and now tie your technical risk in a business way that isn't deeply technical, but is, is very strong and powerful and that it can show. And then you can get into examples and then situations like, did a customer lose money? Did a competitor have a similar problem? Is there now legislation coming down the pipe that's going to be implementing, is going to be um, changing what our implementation and our strategy or what we need to do in the future? And then the very last thing is don't forget to engage them in the decision-making process, whether it's the board or the C-suite. As you, if you go in, you say, I want this, 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 and this. They're not part of it. You're in there demanding. And a lot of times security is demanding after there's been a breach or there's been a material deficiency in, in an audit. Go in there as early on and get engage them. Say, here are the problems. This is what it could mean to our profitability. This is how I can help improve us or protect us in the future, knowing what's happening. And then do you guys agree that this is a good way to spend our money? If they say yes, now you've got consensus and engagement rather than this the you know the crazy finger pointing, which is what happens a lot of the times. The other thing I think a lot of people find challenging when it comes to budget or asking for budget to do something is leaders also often ask the wrong questions. Yeah. So for example, especially when it comes to security, just because you're investing in security, there may not be a physical or even a feature that you're getting that makes your product or your system or your network better, right? So security is more preventative, but you can't see it from the outside. So, you know, often the leaders will be like, oh, if I give you another million dollars, does it mean my customers will have an additional feature? Right. Often the answer is no. Or does it mean I'll have, you know, better colors on the website or yeah. better, you know, the mobile app that will be more interactive? Often it's no. Right. But, you know, being able to have that conversation credibly and explain the value is what's so challenging with security, especially because often people feel like you're not getting something for the investment that you're making. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're best when we're low latency, low friction, and nothing bad happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's talk about application security. I know that's, that's an area of expertise uh, for yourself. There are many application security focused frameworks out there. You know, you've probably heard of our, our common friend, Gary McGraw, published the software security book with the SDLC touchpoints. We have Microsoft SDL, there's BSIM, OpenSAM, et cetera, and many more. What are your thoughts and what insight would you give people when they're trying to decide what they need to use and how to navigate the different options that are out there? I think, and you really named the top, the top frameworks and approaches and processes. And I, I think that the main thing for organizations is to get some kind of a program in place. If you've reviewed the SDL from Microsoft and you also looked at the, the touch points from, from Gary McGraw back when he was at Sigital, uh, it's okay to kind of mix and match with those two. You don't have to necessarily just go down everything in, in, in SDL or everything, but get some kind of a, a application security program in place, a secure software development lifecycle. That's the most critical part. BSIM, as you mentioned, can be a really good way to understand what other companies that look like you or are successful with application security, what they're doing. So you can have a maturity model that you can look at, build towards, but get a framework in place and at least start 
start implementing a program and get some processes down around what the standards for your developers are, start looking at the testing of, that you're going to do at the, in the applications and, and get this built in very early. So you look at security requirements, understand the, the threat model so you can start to build and think about the test harness early. It's more important to start doing it than which one you pick ultimately, because it's it's the it's most companies are not doing it. And I'm, I'm pretty concerned now because we're getting into this really big shift in, in, the, in enterprises where we're no longer writing code from the ground up. We're doing a lot of low code, no code, which is fantastic in terms of what we're able to build and how quickly we're able to build it. But companies that are now creating low code, no code solutions or just you know composite using a lot of, of, of functions and, and, and libraries, they're not thinking about these as this is, this is code that I built from the ground up. So I've heard a lot of times we don't actually build any applications. And then you start talking to the company and you find out that they've actually got a whole lot of scripts that are pulling in functions from the cloud. You know, they're using really cool tools like Zapier and Airtable, but they're giving access into parts of their data sets that they don't realize those scripts are code. <laughs> they're snippets of code, but they're code. So I'm really hoping that companies not just have a program, but also are understanding that they need to extend this program to the low-code, no-code serverless world that, that most of us are moving towards. Well, I'd also be curious as a follow-up to that, with the paradigm shift of moving away from waterfall development methodology to agile and, and everybody wanting to, and I'm going to use air quotes here that you can't see, but DevOps, right? And yeah. DevSecOps are the key buzzwords that are thrown around everywhere. And I, I often feel like people don't understand what they're saying when they when they say those words. But there is clearly a shift from software development being from being waterfall to agile today. Yeah. Do you think there needs to be a different way of thinking when it comes to these security frameworks for agile development versus waterfall? Or do you think it doesn't ultimately matter? You can adapt them to any methodology. So they can, and I have seen them adapted to the, the very, the, the I would call it a hyper agile. When you're looking at DevSecOps, it's hyper agile because it's not just, you know, you're sitting there with your, your pair teams, right? You're, you're now, you're pushing code constantly very often. And you can go faster because you understand ops and what needs to get, to, you know, for the deployment side. But you, yeah, you can you can put security into the DevSecOps world. You can put the testing in there. You just need, again, to think about it and focus on the speed and automation that's required to keep up at the level of DevSecOps. And I think a lot of people, you know, and I've had arguments about if you're back in waterfall, looking at some of these touch points, you know, it can feel like there's a lot of time that's spent to put those steps in. As you look at DevSecOps, it really becomes about, you know, and I know everybody says it, but that shift left CICD pipeline, making sure that you've got the touch points automated into the process. The automation helps a lot. Also, if you get used to doing things like defining security requirements as you're defining the business requirements, even if you're doing those on the fly, if you just stop and you say, okay, that's a great new feature to your point, like, hey, we want to have that new, that we want to turn the whole website purple. Um, wonderful. <laughs> that's fantastic. But then is there any security questions, anything we have to think about that? So if that becomes sort of a second nature as, the, as you get the new feature function, it can be very much a part of the DevSecOps model. Uh, but a lot, you know, unfortunately what happens a lot of times as people are just like, we're just going to go forward faster and they they let security out. But do it, build it and practice it. And you can actually have touch points and, and security within DevSecOps. Absolutely. Well, 
I want to shift gears a little bit away from security, but more towards all the work that you do around machine learning, automation, AI, et cetera. I mean, can we talk a little bit about what type of security concerns or even just concerns in general are there with the way machine learning works, the way AI functions, and what are maybe some thoughts or feedback you have on how to leverage the technology a little more safely? Well, you know, I'm going to go back to, uh, you You already talked about one of our, our friends, Gary McGraw, and he's doing really wonderful work yet again at the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning, where he's looking now uh, to about what we need to build security into machine learning. So what do you think about security within? So he's got a great um, taxonomy that's available for things that can go wrong. What are the areas of attack within machine learning? There's also a really lovely taxonomy on uh, intentional and unintentional failure modes that was done in part by Ram Shankar at Microsoft. So I think there are some great resources out there to start looking at machine learning and let's approach machine learning the way that we need to continue to approach application and code by understanding that there are vulnerabilities within these systems unless we understand what those may be and we we uh, protect or build and secure around them. So taking a look at that and not just trusting what comes out. I think that one problem that occurs with people using systems is that we we just we trust what comes out of a system. If you if you calculate two really big numbers together, do you then stop on your calculator? Do you then go, hey, I better make sure this machine was accurate. I'm just going to go do that multiplication by hand just to double check the calculator, right? We don't do that. And machine learning is machine learning is coming out with things like classification. So if you're classifying is this radiograph, is this a cancerous tumor or not a cancerous tumor, if we don't have a really high confidence in what that system is is telling us about that. We can now be risking somebody's life. That's not a cancerous tumor when it is or, or vice versa. We need to operate and you're opening up somebody when there's no cancer in there. So with machine learning, understand the failure modes, understand the vulnerabilities, and then creating and drawing and building very resilient and resistant solutions and also triggers and alerts so that we can understand, are they starting to drift? Are we getting less accurate findings from whatever we're doing with this classification from that system? Now, are there other concerns as well that you have when it comes to bias, when it comes to how you train these systems or how the algorithms are implemented to interpret results? Can you share a little bit from that perspective? Yeah, yeah. Bias is a big one because as with anything, if you don't understand the process and the foundation and you just now put it in a machine, you end up automating something that's not good. So if you automate a bad system, you end up with a much faster ability to do something wrong. If you take bias, for example, and you now use machine learning for that, you could now automate bias. So when you look at how machine learning is being used, for example, one way is that looking at people who are incarcerated and the the backgrounds, the people that are incarcerated and helping judges to determine what the sentencing should be for a, a, an offender. And if you take just an example of the current model within the United States, as data shows that we've actually got 
got a, a model that is not, it's not fair. And that people of color are much more likely to be arrested and to serve time for a much longer time than Caucasians. So if you, you look at that model, then you, you're now automating the unfairness that already exists within our judicial system into a machine learning model. And the judge isn't going to know that this is biased data behind that model. They're just going to see the outcome again, like with the, you know, with the radiograph. So it's really important that as we look at automating a lot of th things that really impact society, that we ensure that we look at the data that we're feeding into those systems in advance so that we're not bringing forward an already biased system and now just automating it and in many ways codifying it. Because again, it's very, it's not human nature to question if the computer was wrong. We kind of think, well, the computer said it, that's right. So we got to be really extra careful with what we're automating and the data that we're feeding in. No, that's, that's true. And some of the things around the computer always being right, you know, I love movies. And that's kind of my one of my one of my hobbies is just watching movies, I'll watch anything good, bad, <laughs> whatever, it doesn't matter. But one of my favorite things was from uh, an older one of the I forget which version, but one of the older versions of uh, the Batman series used to have a computer that was the the brains behind Batman, and they would put all the clues in that the Joker would leave, and they would know the computer would know the answer. And I, I'm worried that we're getting to a phase where we're just so complacent in trusting that the machines and the systems that help us in our day to day activities that they're either going to always give us the right output or tell us what to do, and we're going to you know, consistently yeah. just do what, what it's telling us to do is what sometimes fascinates me, but also worries me. And most recently, as recent as I think last week, I remember driving my car and the GPS on my car malfunctioned and it just didn't know where I was. It just lost signal and just didn't know where I was. Forever lost. <laughs> and I realized that I had no other way to figure out where I was going because I was out of state in a place I didn't know, didn't know what exit to take, didn't know what to look for didn't know how many more miles to go. So I was frantically just trying to restart my systems to get my bearings right. And 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. I would have known exactly where I needed to go. I would have planned for it. I would have kind of had an idea for the route ahead of time. But I trust the GPS system so blindly that I didn't even bother preparing for that trip that way. Yeah. But it hit, hits very close to home. Yeah. So Diana, let's talk a little bit about your volunteer work. I know that a lot of the work that you do is focused on inclusivity in the security industry. And I'm sure you work with a lot of people who are tr trying to get their break and, and get started uh, in this field. My question for you is more for security leaders. There's a lot of leaders who, if you ask them, will tell you that there's a shortage of security talent uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for those security leaders that are looking for new talent? Yeah, so um, what is to work with the organizations that are doing their best to bring forward? So WESIS is an example of an organization that's trying to bring forward people get into cybersecurity itself. And in, in WESIS, it's very much we're focused on bringing women into cybersecurity. But there are a lot of different nonprofits out there that are looking at cohorts and sectors that have not been as involved in, involved in cybersecurity in the past. So getting involved with them to look for internships, for externships, if you have a program at your company, or to just say, do you have, you know, do you have a, a list of candidates and people, do you keep resumes available? So reaching out and being a little bit more broad, it's very common for uh, a leader to say, oh, we can't find anybody. Yeah, we had to hire somebody who looks like everybody else because there was no other candidate. Well, very often it's not that you didn't look 
far enough or hard enough. Um, and maybe because they're not in your circle. We often, you know, we have our circles of people that we know. And if your circle doesn't extend out very broadly to a lot of people that look different, um, you know, in, in inclusivity, then look to expand your circle and these nonprofits that work with these different cohorts can really be helpful. And in addition to background and education, open up to the education is really important to open up to people that may not have college degrees. Every job in cybersecurity doesn't necessarily need a, a four-year liberal arts degree. So is this new analyst job that you're opening up, does it genuinely need that? Or are you more interested, is, are the technical skills really important? And maybe there's somebody who's just graduated from high school that's done some good training. So rethink what, you know, how you're hiring, who you're hiring, and can you open that aperture a little bit wider beyond just it's got to be a four-year degree and work with those, those communities that are encouraging engagement. And then another tip is to think about how they're writing the job descriptions. So there's been research that shows that, you know, not to get too gendered, but in general, women will not apply for a job unless they've got about 90% of the criteria or higher. Whereas men in general, again, uh, it's about 50%. So if you write a kitchen sink kind of job description where you want absolutely everything under the sun. And I'm sure you've seen that where you're like, who has all of this experience and why is not paying more if somebody did? Um, and it's because they think, well, people are going to come in with, you know, about 50. They want to make sure they get really good resumes. But what they're actually doing is turning off those candidates who are reading that job description and truly believing that if they don't have 90% or even 100% of the criteria, they're not going to be eligible for the job. So also rethink how you write the job descriptions. Don't gender the job description and make sure that they're also not overstuffed. You know, really write it for what are you looking for? Really focus on what's important. And that you'd be surprised, but that actually brings in a lot more resumes too. The job description one is, is one of my favorites. I mean, having written job descriptions for whether creating new roles or trying to hire and, and accelerate growth, you know, we at NetSpy, we're, we're growing very aggressively and trying to hire. So yes. First of all, I, I can appreciate the challenge of writing a job description correctly because it's not my skill set. Maybe there are some people who are good at it. It's hard. I am not, and it's hard. Yeah. But yeah. also having had to look for a job in my, in my lifetime, especially in the technical field, I love how many times I've come across people saying they need 20 years of experience in a certain technology that has only existed for seven. <laughs> Right. You know, and it's it's like a funny meme that goes around uh, over the internet on, on some of those things. Or they say they want A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and the person to be able to do all of those things. And what they don't realize is each of those things they mentioned should be one person. You're not going to find one person who does all 10 things, but that's actually 10 people that you need to hire. That's right. Yeah. So even often the in the recruiting process, recruiters will eliminate things because they're following the job description. Right. And they just eliminate good candidates because they didn't meet all the requirements that you had on the job description. So the writing that correctly has a trickle, you know, trickling effect on many other things, which can maybe prevent you from from hiring the right candidates. So, yeah, absolutely. Very insightful. And, and thank you for that. So to change directions completely. We like to talk on this podcast to people about their personal lives and not just be all work and business. <laughs> and last time we spoke, we found out that we both actually rescued dogs from Arkansas. Uh, my dog is Alfred. He's an Anatolian Shepherd and Pyrenees mm -hmm. mix. As far as we know, he was a stray, so I don't actually know the exact breed. 
Yeah. That's what they guessed it was. And he's about closer to five years old, I think. And it's been wonderful having him for the last couple of months that I got him. Would love to learn more about your experience of the dogs you rescued from Arkansas. I believe they're Nick and Nora. So can you, what can you tell us about them? And I've heard that you've been teaching them interesting tricks. So I would love to hear more about that too. <laughs> Tree teaching her. Uh, yeah, so yeah, Nick and Nora, they are litter mates. And we call her the, um, uh, the impulse adoption because I had lost one, the, just, you know, there are some pets in your life that really become so close to you that when you lose them, it's just, it's every pet loss is very hard, but some pet losses are just even just rip your heart out. And I had lost a, a dog like that, Kenny. And I went online and I was, I could, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. It was days. And, and like the one thing I could do is get online to pet finder. And, and I saw Nick and his name was Henri at the time, but I saw Nick and, and he looked a little, he was puppy, but he, he reminded me of Kenny as a puppy. So I, I, uh, I, I put in an adoption, you know, uh, application form and they said, you, you're approved. But we wanted to let you know it was a really big litter. There are eight of them. And the runt is not kind of not going anywhere at this point. And she's really close to, to Nick, the one you want Henri at the time. Uh, and I said, you know, we, we talked about it. it was, you know, how much harder can two puppies be than, <laughs> than, than one? Uh, well, it's a lot harder. It's like it's exponential. It's not twice as hard. It's like, times because you just got like little mountains running around but anyway so they um so we we got them they brought them up on a pets transport transport from arkansas they had to come separately because they had mange and her mange cleared up a little bit before his but so they're they're pure litter mates they love each other we do give them time apart though because we don't want them to get too interdependent uh, so they can be separated they don't have that i forget what it's called when they're, they're too much together we have no idea what they are they were supposed to be shepherd mutts they look like shepherds but we did that wisdom panel dna test on them and and hers came back with shepherd and a little bit of sight hound and something else and his came back with it's too messy we can't even begin to tell you we have no idea <laughs> so they're like they're like really Heinz 57 mutts all the way dogs and she is a lot smarter than her brother he's we call him the muscle because he's a they're both lovely wonderful amazing dogs but he follows her around and he's he's sort of the muscle and she's the one that thinks things through you can see her brain going and I got really excited about Christina Hunger's work with Stella. And if you follow her on Instagram, it's, it's hunger for words. And she, she, as a speech therapist, she thought, could we do alternate ways to communicate with dogs? They, they can't speak, but they clearly understand what we're saying. They understand phonemes, you know, a sound, they can understand sit and walk and all that. She said, well, what if I gave them a button? And they could push the button with their paw. It's a big button. And then you, we hear the words as humans. You can, you can put the word in there and the dog can hear that as, as, as a confirmation. But now what kinds of things might they be able to do? And if you follow Christina Hunger um, or uh, there's another dog, What About Bunny?, they're really having very complex conversations. Like it'll be the first time they get somewhere, I want to go outside. I want to go to the beach. 
saying which friend they want to play with. Bunny is starting to learn. It appears that, you know, who's in the family and who's not. It's just fascinating. And I thought, let me try that with Nora. But Nora's nine years old. She'll be 10 in December. So it wasn't, uh, she doesn't have the neuroplasticity of a puppy. So I, I didn't think I was going to be able to teach her these really complex kinds of conversations that, that Bunny and Stella learned. So I just started out with, can she learn things like, you know, what, what button means for different foods? Food? Can she go in and out? So she rings the doorbell to go inside. She rings the doorbell to go out. I mean, to come back in. People were surprised. They, you know, over because the doorbell rings. It's the dog doorbell. It's Nora literally trying to come in. She can tell me when she wants snuggles. So it's actually been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we, we add new buttons when it feels like she's really ready for it. But I don't think she'll ever get too complex. And Nick has learned exactly no buttons. Like he, can't, he will go up to the door and he wants to go out. And we've tried, we did the exact same training with both of them. I was really, and I actually did extra after Nora learned, I stayed training with Nick. He's just, it's not his thing, but he'll go over to the door now and he'll wait there and he'll then like go over and kind of poke at Nora because he knows she can get, get him out, but he's still, he still doesn't get it. Just push the button, but he's not quite, not quite able to yet. Yeah. Dogs are fascinating creatures. I'm fascinated by all animals. You know, I have two cats and a dog at home. So my, my house is a zoo. And it's always fun and interesting to see how they interact and, and the behaviors and what they learn versus what they don't learn. Uh, the cats I have are actually also litter mates. One is, uh, one is Atlas, the other one's Aisha. And it's amazing how different they are. Given that yeah. I loved them when they were kittens, they got the exact same treatment and everything. And yet you have Aisha, who is the more like elegant, ladylike, not doing anything too crazy. And Atlas is the clumsy, like goofball, just jumps around and wants to do things. And then it's funny where even when I give them food, Atlas knows to sit. She just figures out where the food's going to go. So she'll just go there and sit there politely while Atlas will just come follow me, try to climb up to see what food I'm giving her and meow and go up and down. And I'm like, just wait there. Look, your sister is just waiting there. Why aren't you doing that? Yeah. She doesn't get it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just different. The brains are completely different and fascinating. The personalities are, I know, I'm, I, that's part of why I'm so interested. And so people are doing buttons with cats too, by the way. They're, 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 they're button training cats to communicate. And I'm fascinated because they're learning about how their brains work. I mean, we can see they have such different personalities like you with Atlas and Aisha, but also their thought processes and, and how they connect dots. It's going to, I'm so excited by this new phase of learning about feline and canine behavior it's uh the the whole uh button with cats reminds me of it shows you how much i love movies the movie meet the parents where the cat flushes the toilet <laughs> by hitting a thing after they use the toilet so i i my goal was to teach my cats to do that i gave up okay. after like a couple of days it's just not gonna happen i do not have the patience to figure Anyways, uh, well, Diana, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, a true pleasure and it was great to finally chat with you. And thank you for your time. Hopefully we can do this again soon. Thank you so much. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.